Hi, podcast listeners. Here's part two of our bird migration episode. Some discussion with Tony, me, and our guest host, Keith Russell from Audubon, PA. Again, if you want to get involved with collecting the bird window collision data, join the iNaturalist project called Bird Window Collisions. Thanks. In the discussion with Jeff and Jamie, they talked about other kinds of hazards for birds that happen to land in a city. There's traffic is one thing. You don't think of birds getting hit by cars, but then roads are, and bird flying relatively low. When you hear about hawks certainly getting hit by cars and owls getting hit by cars. And then of course, uh, you have things that, that Tony and I talk about all the time, namely outdoor cats, which are concentrated in cities. And so add another layer of hazard for the birds. If you have exhausted birds landing in a park, which has a cat colony in it and has neighbors who let their cats out, um, then you've, you've sort of, you're concentrating the birds and you're concentrating a hazard. Well, cities are places that birds have to fly through because there are so many of them and there are more and more places now that are urbanized that are being created all the time. You know, as, as little woodlands get cut down and houses get put up, there's fewer places that don't have elements of civilization in them. Although there's still huge amounts of this country um, and, and lots of places on Earth that are not developed, the amount of area that's developed is just going up every year. So all the things that go with civilization that can be threatening to birds or hazardous to birds are increasing. And there's a lot of things, including pesticides and um, glass on buildings and that birds fly into and, you know, other things, towers and lights. And I mean, if you think of the East Coast, of, which is when you talk about the Atlantic Flyway, which is a sort of a super highway of birds that come up the coast and then disperse into Canada. Yeah. Way to say it. So then if you think of the Northeast, and then if you think that from what um, Bueller and McLaren were talking about, how even from hundreds of kilometers away, the, the glow of the city can sort of pull birds towards the city. There's, no, there's nowhere you wouldn't see a city from up in the air looking for sky glow. And so it's sort of, they almost necessarily end up passing through. Yeah, if you're using the, the, east, the, the eastern shoreline of the United States as a navigation aid, you're flying from city from Portland, Maine to Miami. Other than like a gap in the Pine Barrens and the Okefenokee Swamp, that's about it. I mean, even the Mississippi Flyway, you're going to have St. Louis and New Orleans and... Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of cities everywhere, all over the country. There's, there's of course, a lot more area in the West that's not populated, but um, there's a huge amount of birds that go through the East, and they have to deal with all of these um, lights and other threats along their way. Well, one of the reasons, though, there's not many cities out West is there's not much water. And therefore, there's not much habitat for birds. They're like forest <laughs> birds that are migrating to Canada are going to have a hard time flying through the they're Great not, Basin. Yeah, they're not in Phoenix so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Keith, you've done some research into the window collision uh, problem in Philadelphia. Uh, you talk a little bit about that. Well, um, Audubon worked with the um, Conservation Department at the Philadelphia Zoo for many years. And um, we did some monitoring of bird collisions, that is birds that are colliding with windows um, because they're reflective or because they're transparent and uh, they're fooled by the glass. They're not familiar with glass and they just fly into it. Um, and these are mainly migratory birds. 
but there are also some young birds that are naive and haven't seen glass before. Uh, a lot of birds that live in cities all the time, like starlings and pigeons, even morning doves and cardinals, eventually learn what glass is and they don't fly into it as much. And I think this is just my opinion that the reason that they're young don't do it is a lot is because they probably learn from the parents and by the time that they figure out independently what glass is all about, they've learned not to fly into it. But these other birds that are migrating through our area, um, from the from the boreal forest, you know, going down to the tropics and back and forth, many of them never encountered glass when they were born and they had no idea that anything like that existed until they pop up in a city during their migration. And then they see a reflection of trees and you know, a center city or downtown building. And they say, oh, look, there's some trees. Let's go fly into that. And it happens to be a hard surface. And it always reminds me of the Roadrunner cartoon <laughs> when the coyote was fooled coyote by yeah. something that the Roadrunner <clears throat> painted on a rock. And the coyote <laughs> thinks that it's real. It goes, oh, no, wait, wait, wait. Was it the, ro- the reverse? Was the coyote trying to get the Roadrunner to fly into something? They would do it back and forth, but I think the... The, the, the coyote it's been lost most of the time. The coyote always lost, but the coyote would paint something, and then the trick was with the Roadrunner would then like actually run in through it. Oh, and he'd so, try it and then smack and into it. And he'd try it. and smack into it. Yeah. It's been a while since I saw the Roadrunner cartoons, <laughs> but that's that was the idea. Fool, fool the Roadrunner or something into thinking there was something that he could fly into and wasn't. But... Birds do fly into these reflections that they see on glass, and they fly into transparent glass because they don't know what glass is. They think they can fly through it into a building. So um, Audubon and the zoo did some monitoring. And we also, um, the, the main study that we did on this was between 2008 and 2011, and the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University was our other partner. So and all three was, of us worked on this. And this was going out like crack of dawn. And so, walking around buildings. Yes, we had monitors that monitored an area that included about 12 buildings. And we would monitor it um, seven days a week for you know about eight weeks in the spring and maybe a little longer in the fall during migration. And we would monitor every day from uh, early, very early in the morning until about 8 o'clock. So um, we were there for a couple hours, right before the sun came up and right after the sun came up. So um, we would monitor the area continuously during those couple hours and look for dead birds. And um, we would collect, you know, whatever we found. Sometimes we found birds that were alive. About 25% of the birds we found were alive, but they were birds that had collided with buildings and were stunned and injured. And uh, the rest were dead. So the dead birds were um, What do you do with the live ones? We took the live ones to garden areas within the study area. And we put them in areas where they wouldn't be stepped on or swept up by street cleaners. Okay. And we hoped that they would recover and um, fly away. So we learned a lot of big, we learned a lot about like what species were flying into buildings downtown, you know what times, um, what parts of buildings birds were flying into. We were able to go up on to um, the upper levels of a lot of tall buildings, including the Comcast building, which was in the tallest building in downtown Philly, um, the Bell Atlantic building, and um, there was another building we went up and looked on. Um, subfloor roofs was the Mellon Bank building 
and we found dead birds on subroofs of all those buildings, which um, is something that other people in other cities who monitor for bird collisions don't do. So um, we we had always been told that birds that collide with um, buildings because of the glass are mainly colliding with the first with the windows on the first or second floors yeah. if it's a skyscraper and we found birds you know the 50th floor and above on the Comcast building and all these buildings so we believe that that's not really true that birds are colliding with these buildings um, from the top to the bottom uh, so that was something that was rather unusual that we found that we didn't expect but um we also measured the distance that birds were from the nearest building to get an idea of how high up they were hitting. Because a bird that hits a building six feet above the ground is not going to bounce 20 feet away from the building yeah. and land on the ground. And we were finding birds that were, you know, 15, 20 feet away from some of these that buildings. That applies further fall. So that was uh, more evidence that a lot of these birds were hitting these buildings really high up. And... Um, so these birds don't hit these buildings when they're actively migrating. That is, they're not flying at night. Even the ones high up? Even the ones high up, uh, they're not flying at night and they go smack into a building like you would see in some sort of cartoon. Well, but that so, gets at, the, at some of the things people... Sorry, go ahead. I'll get well, I was going to say, one of, the, you know, one of the reasons we know this is if you go up to the Empire State Building in New York City yeah. at night, you can go up to their observation deck and stay till I think, I think 2 in the morning. And you can see, it's the most fascinating thing, you can see birds migrating at night. You can actually see them doing it because of the glow of the building and all the other buildings in New York City. You can see the birds coming at a distance and you can actually observe nocturnal migration well, like, as it's like happening. flying around you as you're standing there? Or? They're flying at the building and you can see them, if it's a wind, you can see them compensating for the way in which the wind is blowing so that it won't blow them into the building. They see the building coming, and they're trying to avoid it as they're flying toward it. So these birds see the buildings. They're trying to fly around them, and they're not just smacking into them. Because we have so much ambient light in cities at night, birds can see these buildings as they're flying so around then, them. Because you hear about campaigns like Lights Out Toronto or something like that. So then that implies that that's not the key problem. Well, I think what Jeff Bueller's research is indicating is that lights aggregate birds yeah and they can sort of ag aggregate in areas where there's a lot of light like cities yeah. and so they find themselves encountering these cities and then when they finish their migration they fly down to the ground and that's when they start to get into trouble because when they fly down to the ground and they're looking pausing for, for a day or two right yeah they're resting from their migratory behavior and yeah. they're actually stopping when they fly down to the ground, which they can do at 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, they get into trouble because they're looking for trees or other places to stop and rest. And they see a window and they want to go into that building. Or they see a window that's illuminated by light at night and they think that the reflection is something they can fly into. So I think that the main problem occurs after they have stopped actively migrating not while they're actually migrating. But the light glow from cities, um, I think we still have to learn a lot more about this, but Jeff Bueller's research suggests that the light glow can just aggregate birds yeah. in areas where there's a lot of light. And we also know um, 
from other research that's been done um, that when birds are migrating over areas that are really bright, they call more than they uh, call in areas that are dark, which has been interpreted as meaning that they're, they're stressed and they're okay. anxious um, during their migratory flights. And then, of course, lights can have direct effects on birds' ability to navigate. And when you look at, um, for example, the big searchlights that are created every year oh. um, in September on, on the anniversary of 9-11 in New York, and these, they've got these two huge beam columns of light that are created that, you know, are shining straight up into the sky. I think they're like 40 lights that make up each column. And these things go up, I don't know how far, but it's probably a mile or more. And birds gather in these lights. And they're they flying they around turn like them off every now and then, so they sort of let the birds. Move so on. the yeah. lights are just on, and when they get a certain number of birds that are milling around in these lights, just like moths, they turn them off so the birds can disperse. Yeah. But these birds that are flying around in the lights, why are they flying around in the lights? Have they had their migratory navigational abilities disrupted by the lights? I mean, when birds are migrating, they're sensitive to light. And they are looking at the stars to find out which way to go. They're sensing the Earth's magnetic field. And they need a certain amount of light to be able to sense the Earth's magnetic field, especially in the blue spectrum. So if they're flying around in white light, maybe that's preventing them from other wavelengths are preventing them from um, using their navigational abilities. We know that red light really seems to short circuit their ability to, to navigate. So anyway, bright lights are problematic to birds migrating at night. They're used to migrating in darkness with the Stars. ability yeah. to sense, you know, things like the magnetic field and um, the stars, pattern of the stars. But we have all these competing lights and um, they cause stress for birds. They may just disrupt their ability to navigate. And we'll learn a lot more as we start to look at this uh, about how cities are affecting birds. But nevertheless, birds are migrating, they're going through cities and they're, they're getting you know, to where they need to go, but it's probably causing some problems for them. And I think the biggest problem is when they stop in cities and they rest and they start to, during the daytime or at night, get fooled by glass and fly into it. And lights that are really, really, really bright, that stand out, that can be seen from a distance, um, can attract birds, lights on buildings, uh, or lights reflected off of buildings, if they're super, super bright, um, can attract birds, and birds will fly into the lights or fly into the buildings that have these bright lights on them. Um, there was a building in Galveston, Texas last May that was super bright during um, the spring migration one night and there was a storm and a lot of birds were coming across the Gulf of Mexico. They were coming into Galveston and they flew into the building. Hundreds of birds flew into the building. And there wasn't, it's, it wasn't glass. It was just because it was bright. Birds used to also do this at the Washington Monument um, in, in D.C. when it was brightly lit at night during migration. Wow. They would fly into the Washington Monument sometimes and people that saw them saw them re repeatedly individual birds flying, hitting the monument, bouncing off and flying into it again. So this suggests to me that they don't know where they are. They can't, they're- They're it's thoroughly confused. They're yeah. very confused and yeah. they're trying to go to something <clears throat> they're attracted to, but 
it does it you know it's a building yeah. So the lights are affecting them. They're they're dis disorienting them in some kind of way. So that and there are other there are other structures. Uh, there's a place in Tennessee with a big cross. I think it's Tennessee. That's on a hill at some university, and yeah. birds fly into that because it's brightly lit. So lights. They're trying to be saved. <laughs> Tony said they're trying to be saved. Well, I, I'm I'm not going to touch that one, but. <laughs> So the so then so that that does imply that that maybe there's room for like a lights out kind of campaign, um, especially we're looking at tall, bright buildings. Yes, lights are still an issue, yeah. but they're not the same. They're not causing the same types of problems that they caused a hundred years ago, where we had lots more um, fatalities due to lights because there were fewer. Um, Cities that had lots and lots of lights on at night. So light, lit building really <clears throat> suck them in. Yeah, there was there was an article actually, another pitch for Ken Frank's wonderful Ecology Center City Philadelphia. He has a discussion there about right after basically City Hall was built, they had lights around the clock tower, um, and then people would find tons of dead birds. Not after, every day. Not every day, but, but after particularly foggy nights or something during migration, the right combination of circumstances. <clears throat> but when they, I guess, low cloud ceiling and whatnot, and they would, that that particular lit up tower would really um, pull them in. And, yeah, I think when City Hall opened in 1896, maybe, a couple days after that, the first, um, it was July, late July maybe, the first bird was found. It was a Sora rail. And it hit City Hall. And after that, people started finding birds periodically and sometimes hundreds and hundreds of birds a night because it was so brightly lit. And the rest of the city was not, I mean, it's 1900, so we didn't have as many bright lights. Yeah. So this, and City Hall was just lit so much brighter than it is now. So so then I guess the question, what I'd like to, to ask about or talk about, discuss is what do we do? I know that universities, some universities around Philadelphia, for example, where they end up being more motivated to do something about the problem, but also have a frustrating combination of greenery and, and buildings surrounded by greenery to reflect off the windows. Um, yeah. Well, what about his work um, with Temple? We started working with them in 2009, and we worked specifically with the sustainability department. And uh, we've since um, been working with the landscape architects at University of Pennsylvania, and both of those um, institutions have um, been addressing the collision problem through those departments, and um, they put up markings, um, stripes, or other patterns on collision-prone windows on particular buildings where they were able to do this, and it has been effective in preventing birds from colliding with those windows. But you know, it's just a tiny fraction of the collision-prone windows on each of these campuses. But it's a start, and there are many, uh, Duke is one, there are many other universities where action is being taken to try to address this. What really is needed is to get the architects who are designing brand new buildings on these um, university yeah. campuses to incorporate. Um, it's been incorporated into the LEED standards, I believe. Well, there's a pilot credit for bird okay. collision deterrence, um, pilot credit 55, which came into a being about six or seven years ago. And um, 
it's still a pilot credit, but a lot of people have applied for it. And it tells you how to build a building in a way which will reduce its chance of having bird collisions. It's taking the stuff, yeah. So LEED is, you know, a big deal. And a lot of people think if they have a LEED certified building, they're green. But LEED never addressed bird collisions. Don't talk about wildlife at all. Birds yeah, it's included. Yeah. Yeah. And even other building standards like the Living Building Challenge and others that are out there that are very much more advanced than LEED in terms of their um, their greenness. Yeah. None of them address bird collisions. It's fascinating. So, you know, here in Philadelphia, we have uh, Audubon has worked with uh, these two universities and we've worked with other um, building owners. And in the city, we're working um, also with Temple Ambler because they have a, uh, a collision problem. And, you know, I think that when you look at where we are now compared to where we are 15 years ago, the landscape has changed. And there's a awareness about the thing that's going on with birds and glass and lights. And, you know, we're addressing the collision problem, um, not only in terms of lighting, or we're aware of the collision problem, not only in terms of the effects of lights, but the effects of glass. And Dr. Dan Clement, Muhlenberg um, yeah. College. Or is it Muhlenberg University? Oh, I... <laughs> I Muhl- we'll just call it Muhlenberg. Muhlenberg. Which is just up the road. At um, Allentown. Yeah, about an hour from yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah. So he's the, um, the world's probably most famous researcher on this particular topic. And so he's right in our region. And we've been able to um, have the benefit of working with him and getting his, um, his input and, and understanding and knowledge, as well as Dr. Chris Shepard, who works for the American Bird Conservancy, who's headquartered. She has her office in New York City. So we're in a great region here in Philadelphia to be able to get information about this. Let's say you're an urbanite who loves wildlife or you're a birder specifically. And you've been um, noticing that the office building you work in has an awful lot of dead birds, you know, in, in spring and fall. Or I mean, like I, I've only noticed like the odd single bird here and there in my goings around the city. But like, if you're let's say you're saying, well, there's a bunch of them. What should you do? Well, it's a tough thing to really give a good answer about. You know, we I think we're still at a point where there's not a really good answer for that particular question. But I think that it's not something that you, it's hopeless. I think that the basic thing that you can do is to gather information about what's going on at your building and raise awareness. And once you do that, either the people that own or manage that building are going to be receptive to doing something about the problem or they're not. Yeah. And, you know, if they're not, um, they're not. Uh, if they are, then you can think about trying to put some sort of markings on the building. But when you're talking about a commercial building, this has to be done in a way that is, you know, going to cost a lot more money than um, a non-commercial building. But I think that for anybody who has... Um, notice that there are dead birds around their building, if it's an office building, a place of you know a, a place where they work, that monitoring is a really helpful thing. If you can get other people at your job 
to go out and monitor and collect these birds and find out how many there are, when they're appearing, and what part of the building they're in. If you can get a sense for what part of the building they're hitting, because they may not be hitting every window in that building. And this is where that, I, so the iNaturalist tool is a really great one because it records the coordinates where you see the bird. Exactly. So then so then that's something where you can even see around a building where are the hot spots. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a great um, idea of a great way that people can take that information and then record it. So um, once you do that, you start to learn about what's really going on. And it may take you a couple years to really see any consistency in what's going on because collision patterns can change from year to year. And, um, you know, one year's data is better than none. But if you can get two or three, you get a fuller understanding or appreciation for where collisions may be going on. And if you're in a big office tower and you can um, talk to the maintenance staff they always know yeah. where things are going on because they have to clean up the birds. But they may not be recording information in a way that allows you to have really a clear a understanding. Yeah. But yeah. they can give you insight in, as to what's going on and where the hot spots may be. But I've, you know, in our experience working with maintenance um, staff, they may tell you things that are actually misleading. They may be very helpful, but until you have systematic monitoring every day at the same time, you may not have the, a full understanding of what's happening with collision. Matt Halley would, if he were here, he would say, get a plastic Ziploc bag and bag up, assuming that you've checked about your local game commission's rules about collecting dead birds, bag them up in individual Ziploc bags and deliver them to your nearest natural history museum. <laughs> Or to your nearest environmental center. Your nearest environmental center where they're building a... Talk about your collection of buildings. Yeah, I'm trying to build a uh, collection. Uh, First of all, I'm trying to get more taxidermy um, because it's just what you do in an environmental center. (laughs) The other thing, I'm trying to get a collection that can um, be handled by the visually impaired. Do you need more deer bones? (laughs) Maybe. I have a lot. Okay, never mind. Go on, sorry. Um... But yeah, I'm trying to build a collection so um, I can have people handle them who, because I, I, I'm, every year I'm trying to do it more than once a year, but working with the visually impaired and yes, you know, they're able to handle the specimens, but a scientific collection, I'm not going to be able to handle that. So I can't like borrow some from the museum. I have to right. have my own. Okay. So there's, ask around, there might be something that you can do with the dead birds aside from just take a picture of them. In a minute, we'll switch to happier things. If this wouldn't be a Billy and Tony production if we didn't make a recommendation about cats as pertains to the hazards our migratory birds face? Tony, should people have cats outside? People should definitely not have cats outside. Anywhere in the world. You should not have a cat outside. Because um, in part, some parts of the world, cats pose a problem to the animal that they're descended from. Fair point. If you're in, the, if you're in Europe or Mediterranean or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you're... You could give diseases to the Eurasian wildcat is in yeah. trouble, and you can be giving diseases and also interbreeding with them and swapping out their their wild genes. Let's say you're North America, or maybe South America too. Part one is keep your keep your cat inside. You don't want to have your cats running amok in that kind of situation with all these tired warblers hanging out, um, which are just sort of cat bait. I'll, I'll throw in there that this adds more urgency in a way to, to trying to figure out how to 
get cat colonies in particular away from parks. Even in non-park areas, there is still wildlife that people should be able to observe and enjoy without cats diminishing it for them. Also, people should be allowed to have gardens that don't get on by feral and stray cats. By all means. And root yeah. up their stuff. You know, that's, you know, they cause lots of other problems. And they give diseases like toxoplasmosis, like Hawaiian monk seals and sea otters. And all of that being given in a conversation that Tony and I have, because we are always hitting this point, but especially around <clears throat> the green areas and cities that are draws for birds, these are the worst places you could put a bunch of cats. Yeah, and you know what cats do, and we've seen this in the monitoring that um, Audubon has done at, at various places, cats will patrol at night areas where birds are smacking into glass because they know that they're going to be weakened or stunned birds that they can capture. Yeah. And so these birds don't have a chance. Um, some of them might have a chance of, you know, recovering and flying away, but cats are cleaning up these dead, injured birds in places where, you know, they're flying into glass in cities, um, in downtown areas sometimes, especially in residential areas where there are a lot of cats. But I wanted to say one, one more thing about the um, bird collisions. Most bird collisions are estimated to occur on homes, residential structures. There's uh, um, a lot more, lot more windows on houses than there are on skyscrapers when you add it all up. That's why they're estimated to occur more on... The, the total number of birds that collide with uh, glass are... The largest percentage are estimated so to occur. If we're talking about your house, what do you right. do? So your house, you can actually do something... Um, more easily than you can in a skyscraper because it's not 50 stories high, it's only maybe two or three. <laughs> easier to get to the windows. <laughs> easier to get to the windows. And um, you can also make them look, you know, you can, you can put things on them to discourage the collisions that you wouldn't be allowed to put on a commercial building. Yeah. So you can take temper paint, for example, during migration season and put little leaves all over your windows. It has to be a dense enough pattern that birds are like two aren't inches gonna, apart. You have to know further than two inches apart? Two to three inches, inches apart yeah. or so, something like that. Um, if you have a collision problem, you can just window, hose that off afterwards. And, yeah, exactly. So that's why the paint, the temper paint is um, helpful because it comes off. And you could put little um, patterns of stars or squares with some craft paper, or you could get um, this stuff called bird tape from the American Bird Conservancy, which is strips um, of tape that comes in different widths. You can cut them into shapes or into squares or rectangles and make a little checkerboard on your glass. Make it decorative, make it attractive, but put something on there that's a pattern that's really dense that you may um, be able to see through and still see things, but birds are going to say, there's too many things on that window for me to try to fly into that. And there's these things where you can hang, like, the, the fringes of strings that hang down. Yeah, so that's... So you can just tack to the outside and take it down later if you want. Those are called bird savers. Yeah. And basically they're ropes or cords that are hung in front of a window vertically. And you put them at least every four inches. No larger than four inches. Yeah. And they're just going to hang in front of your window. They're going to be blown back and forth by the wind. You might want to put a little weight at the bottom. Or you might want to cut them maybe four or five inches longer than they need to be because they may shrink. Yeah. Um, but... As long as they're hanging at least four inches apart or closer, um, you can see through them, uh, but birds are not going to want to fly through that. 
Now, that's not something you could put on, you know, Wells Fargo Bank downtown, <laughs> but you can do that at your house. So you yeah. got the Bird Savers Accords. You can put the ABC Bird tape or other types of tape on the outside of the window. And these, the tape has to go on the outside, not on the inside. And you can put tempera paint. Or you can be creative and use your own imagination to find some pattern you can put it on the outside of this. It yeah. works for your house. I think we should um, move back to brutalism for buildings. <laughs> all um, concrete all the time. Yeah, instead of these like <laughs> glass monster, bird killing monstrosities, we went back to brutalism. You know, a lot less collisions. Let's end on a positive note. We were talking in this interview with uh, Bueller and McLaren about on the upside what you can do aside from you know getting cats out of the picture and and bird proofing your windows, also making parks better habitat for birds when they stop and this is stuff um, that uh, ranges from planting more fruit bearing I mean Audubon as a whole um, gardening it's plants for birds campaign right? yeah and it's about planting native plants right so then you have more um, let's say berries and such for them to eat especially the, not so much the berries it's the it's the it, it's we'll get to the bugs in a second yeah. well, well it's Plant tissue that native insects can digest and therefore you provide more birds. Yeah, yeah. No, so, so what I was going to say is first is, is for those that do eat berries, if you have like Virginia creepers or something up there, then you've got fruit in the fall for them to grab. But especially what Tony's talking <coughs> about, because this is what you did your grab research yeah. on. Yeah, well, berries and flowers are trading carbohydrates for transportation genetic material. Yeah. So even a plant that's not native from here usually has berry or flower that could be Fair consumed. Yeah. Right. So like people are like, oh, you like butterflies? Let's put a butterfly bush out. Or you could plant porcelain <coughs> berries. You know, right. plenty of berries. Yeah. So the po- and porcelain that, berries are a nasty, invasive, exotic. Animal. Yeah. <coughs> so the idea is, yes, birds can use those, but if you're going to plant something that both produces a berry or flower, that the congregants will, will use <coughs> or. Uh, you know, cedar waxings will, will feed on the berries, but also have leaves that can be consumed by native insects because it seems that if insects did not co-evolve with that plant, they can't eat it. Yeah. And so... I mean, and also the reasons we, that ornamental plants are planted is because they do well and they're hardy in a way that, that basically it's saying our bugs don't eat them. And so it's 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 an interesting argument that I'm starting to think about how you make the people that like, that no, we need more bugs. <laughs> and yes. so, you know, it isn't saying, no, we don't need more stink bugs that are going to invade your house necessarily, but we need more... Caterpillars. Caterpillars. We need more, in general, grubs and right. beetles and moths and such. Yeah. Um, and so native plants are a way to get more bugs in our parks. Yeah. And of all the native trees we have in our area, Tony can tell you which ones are the most important. Well, the species that has the most insects on it is black cherry. But oaks as a group have the most. Yeah. Not necessarily individual species of oak, but oaks as a group have the most. So oaks, black cherry. What is it? Just that their, their complexity, like the, you have the rough bark, you have, you have I don't know, what, what is it about oaks? 
I've always wondered this. I haven't seen. I'm not exactly sure. Um, I mean, because it's not like they're. I mean, their leaves are particularly indexed. I mean, their, their leaves are relatively toxic. I mean, a lot of them with all the the tannins on them. But they're, they're these species of butterflies and moths and so on that breed that breed and lay their eggs on them. That's what they can digest. Yeah. Okay. Well, I love oak trees. I got nothing against them. I yeah. saw um, at 47th Baltimore today. I had a flock of cedar waxwings feeding in oaks. I have been seeing cedar, seeing cedar waxwings all over the place the past few weeks. I saw some up in uh, Fishtown the other day. I saw some at the playground, 47 in Sansom. Yeah. They breed all over Philadelphia, and they start coming back in April, so they're back. They are an absolutely uh, urban bird. They, thank you, because yeah. a lot of people don't think of them that way. The Japanese pagoda trees, uh, but they produce these like bean kind of fruits that I've noticed cedar waxwings eating. Yeah, well, this is important places. to like make those observations because we have what are called novel environments now. Yeah. These all these combinations of new, you know, like non-native species and so on, and we don't understand them fully or how all different types of wildlife interact with them or live in them. So all these observations that like you were talking about the Japanese pagoda trees, who knew that? I mean, that leader waxwings were eating that. Um, you know, they're we just don't know all the things that they're eating. So these non-native trees. Like Tony said before, they can provide carbohydrates or seeds or fruits for birds, right. but there's a dark side to them in that the long-term outcome of having all these non-native trees is you depress your native insect population, and that is the groundwork for disaster. We need because urban insects are what everything yeah. eats. Or the things that eat other things that eat insects. So if we don't have insects, <laughs> you know, spiders. <laughs> the, the whole ecosystem is going to collapse. Yeah. Not to mention the things that insects do for us that are yeah. important. Yeah. I mean, if you want <clears throat> something feeding on berries, if you want to provide something with berries, well, you know, holly, American holly, yeah. hackberry, um, black cherry. I just planted some fox grapes. Yeah. Like all these things, yeah. you know, like. There are alternatives. Yeah. Viburnums. Dog, um, alternate leaf dogwood. So, plant some native plants. Keep your cats inside, um, and check your windows. And download a naturalist so that when you walk around a building and see a dead bird, you can book it right there on your phone. And if you want to be like me, you can throw a, a, a box of sandwich-sized Ziploc bags in your <laughs> in your work bag, just in case you see some. So, with that, thank you to Keith for making the trek out from the other side of the city to talk to us. Thank you for rating us highly on your podcast listening app of choice. And thank you for getting in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com and at Twitter at urbanwildlifecast. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Give us some more ideas. And I'll say one more thing. This is a great time of year to get out. I'm doing like four or five herp walks this spring between the two of you guys. I don't know how many birding walks you'll do between now and <laughs> yeah. the end of June. Um, so if you're living in a city and you're listening to this and you just haven't gotten out much to, to see the local wildlife, you have no excuse. Now is the time to get out. Um, check with your local nature center, your local Audubon, your local Herpers, whoever. Someone's getting out to teach you about urban wildlife, and this is the time to get out. Cheers.